0: Welcome back to another episode of the Individuation Podcast. My name is James Malimus, and we've got a great episode for you. Today, we welcome Dr. Alan Yugenbuehl to discuss his book, Men, Power, and Myth, The Quest of Identity." In this episode, we will go over the first chapter and introduction. It's a great discussion, and we can't wait for you to hear it. If you enjoyed the Individuation Podcast and want to support, make sure to rate the podcast five stars on iTunes and wherever you get your podcast. So without any further ado, Dr. El-Samurai, take it away.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Individuation Podcast. I'm Dr. Lahab El-Samurai. With me today is Dr. Alan Eugenbuehl. Um, We are going to discuss uh, his book, Men, Power, and Myth, The Quest of Male Identity. Um, one of your early books, I think yes um it has a foreword by robert Bly, uh the poet and um you could get these at eight books i was able to get them at eight books but uh you could try amazon again um i'm sure if they get enough requests that uh they'll start carrying it again so um part of what we're going to try to do today is i'm gonna uh, ask Dr. Eugenbuehl some questions about um, the first chapter. We're going to do the first chapter. And uh, the first chapter is titled The Psychology of Neglect of Men, or Psychology's Neglect of Men. And um, it says that, uh, I think you call it, men as deficient beings is how you start out. And what I wanted to say is, I wanted to read a little bit from here. Um, And uh, a dream that you had. So on page 13 of the bottom paragraph, um, you say, I am reminded of one session in my own psychoanalysis in which I discussed a very meaningful dream. In the dream, I was an inmate at the Dachau concentration camp. I was somehow able to escape this inhumane situation after an odyssey over numerous passes in the Alps, overcoming various impediments. I was finally captured again. I was to be shot. But first, the Nazi executioners forced me to eat wood. At the end of the dream, I was freed by the allies and released in a mountain meadow. Then you talk about, how did my therapist react? She nodded, began asking me about my personal associations. And then you go on to talk about, I thought of new photographs from World War II. She asked about the fate of the Jews and the role of my native Switzerland played. My therapist is not satisfied. Apparently she wants me to be more personal straining. I try to connect the dream with my everyday life situation. Why am I resisting? Finally, I make a connection to tensions in my own, in one of my relationships. The discussion with my therapist is adamantly revealing and worthwhile. But at the same time, I have a curious stale feeling at the end of the hour. The session did not satisfy me. The dream collapsed and became banal. Um, something was taken away from me. Was this kind of psychological work really the right way to reflect about my dream? Tell me about this dream. I think it's an interesting dream. Well,
2: uh, first I have to make some statements perhaps. Yes, sure. to the book, and Then I'll t- uh, talk about that particular dream. I mean, I've written the book because uh, then when I've written it, but also nowadays, there was kind of a continuous bashing of men, you know, men, the kind of deficient beings, men have to learn and gender became very important. And so, and uh, I personally, you know, I'm a psychologist. So I went through psychoanalysis, I studied psychology. So I was very much confronted with this notion that, you know, as man, you have to learn to formalize personal feelings. As man, you actually, you repress your feelings often. So we're kind of, we have to learn, we have to learn to consider our emotions. We have to learn to be more personal. This was kind of a mantra, which I was confronted with in my studies, a mantra, which I heard during education and also at the fields I worked that actually, as a man, you have to kind of acknowledge more the, the personal side of your life, the influence from your family, the influence from relationship. And actually, this is the way I started. And then after a while, through my personal analysis, but also through other encounters and observation, I thought, is this really the case? Is this, I mean, Is this the right path? And then gradually, and coming back to the dream, there was kind of one um, experience I had. I had this dream and the dream, as I said, had an impact on me, it was important for me, but I was sitting there in the consultation room, having my analyst, who was a good analyst, you know, uh, in front of me talking about this dream. And so, and actually expected it to, connected to something because I felt it had a lot of energy. I felt it perhaps also contained some kind of message, but the whole session then was completely unsatisfactory. It left me void. It kind of, as you said, the dream collapsed. I walked out and said, well, okay, is that that? She kind of connected it to some issue, I forget what. And then I started dwelling on it. And I started thinking of it. And then, of course, I realized that the dream did not just contain a personal issue. It wasn't just a reflection of my personal life, but it was a reflection of something which actually we we're all and still confronted with. It's our past in Europe, of course, with the dreadful past the dreadful history, Europe destroying itself and building itself up again, this outrageous, outrageous uh, Hitler regime of the Third Reich. And so, and the different um, different protagonists in this whole scene, being the national socialists, Hitler, the party, and then the allies, and then Switzerland in the middle. These were grand stories around. And these were stories which were paramount everywhere, somehow. These were actually the basis, the foundation of a lot of our beliefs, the foundation, a lot of our fears. And I started to when I started to include the, the history, when I started to include, you know, what I knew about, you know, Dachau, the concentrations part, suddenly the whole dream had a completely different meaning. Suddenly it opened up, suddenly it gave me some kind of vigor, some kind of understanding. And I thought, well, perhaps this dream is not just personal, but perhaps it's also a reflection of what is around me. Perhaps it's also a reflection of the whole context I'm living in. Perhaps it also contains some kind of elements from not just my personal past, but from the past of, of Europe, of Germany. And uh, perhaps I have to have a broader mind. And that was something um, which actually then in this analytical hour I had started to, started to impress me. And of course, as a psychologist, I thought, well, how come, how come it was only the personal importance? How come did you only ask me about my personal notions? What was the story? Because psychology is about understanding human beings. Psychology is about uh, uncovering hidden motives. Psychology is about uh, kind of uh, having an idea of one's own plans, future. So how come I'm sitting here doing analysis and all this is kind of not touched, is it? That I'm actually incapable of reflecting personally. Is it that I'm incapable of wording what goes the connections? Is it that? And um,
1: I don't think so, bro. You you could relate personally.
2: Of course, I could relate. My experience
1: of you has always been you're able to relate personally. What was it about the dream? The way she asked you to associate with the dream. That yes, left you wanting. What was that thing that she did?
2: She put it back. She related it to ex- personal experience in my life, towards my then girlfriend, towards um, I forget. You know, some kind of uh, I think the parents. You know, uh, identifying something as a, a boss. I forget, but that's the way she talked. Oh exactly so she thought well this must be represent a uh, symbol of your uh, work situation dachau symbol of my work situation when this uh, escaping through the alps must be kind of uh, uh, signifying that you're trying to cross borders get somewhere else and so so it was all personalized of course it was my personal dream but i think my dream was also a medium my dream was also containing something which was not in a sense personal that it has to be can be understood with person metaphors with, with in relation to my individual life but which might be only be understandable in with relation re, when you relate to the broader context of the psychology of a group of a nation or a Uh, what I would later call it
1: the mythology. That's actually what actually put me on there. So you said, I wanted to um, cover some of this. It's very interesting. You said the insidious power of the consulting room, which I found very inflammatory, but it's uh, fun. Um, You say uh, on page 15, I have... Pose the question of whether psychology has failed to grasp what is essentially male. To answer this question, we need to examine the manner and style of psychotherapeutic work. Where and how with whom the men of psychology did their work influenced the conclusions they drew. So you were talking about uh, Jung and Freud um, as you go on in the page. um, And you say, we have to take into account down the page, we have to take uh, into account the nature of this place where the analytical work occurs, the setting influences we think and contributes to how the soul manifests itself. We have to relate to Freud and Jung's insight as well as those of psychotherapy in general with this place of meeting. Next to the secrets of the unconscious, intimacy is the subject of the consultation room's exploration. What the founding fathers of depth psychology observed was colored by the place and the ritual that they chose for their work. The personal encounter of two human beings in a closed room served as their medium for the investigation of the soul. Behind a closed door, the patient and therapist sit opposite one another, or the patient lies on the couch while the analyst sits behind him on a chair. The therapist directs his attention to his patients, listens to his problems and tries to feel his way into the patient's situation. The therapist attempts to understand the patient to emphasize with him um, and explore with his understanding and empathy, the background of the patient's problem and difficulties. Why does he suffer from self-doubt? What do the anxieties attacks or sense of alienation mean? Together, they arrive at the conclusion. Usually, they seek a consensus and develop, um, thereby, a story that is true for both of them. Through his personal contact with the patient, the psychotherapist discovers the source of the patient's suffering and guides him to healing. So, And then you you go on of what happens in the consulting room. But um, tell us about what you're thinking when... Um, You're talking about the forefathers and how they started psychology and how um, their psychological method um, started to influence um, the way they viewed uh, the feminine or masculine aspect of psychology.
2: Well, let me start like that. You know, Freud, Jung, Jung, and others actually, hundred years ago, more than 100 years ago, actually they're in the way of discovering something very important. and they were actually in the way of trying to decipher soul. I call it soul. I think the expression soul is not so It's a good expression, meaning some kind of energy which actually re- manifests itself through images, pictures, which energizes ourselves. So it's a, they're actually soul searchers. They search soul, and that was actually the basic uh, notion. They were trying to find out what is soul. Now, soul expresses itself in different settings, in different surroundings. And I think that's very important to know. And in order to find, can you out, explain
1: that a little bit, Alan? Can you talk about how soul expresses itself in different surroundings?
2: I'm about to explain it. What I mean is. The way actually we encounter this energy is, is um, we encounter it in different places. We can encounter the um, uh, soul when we're perhaps in the mountains in Switzerland and oh. suddenly touched and with ideas, fantasy, emotions. We can encounter it when we, you know, in, in different, different ways, but I'll explain that part. When we, soul is often contained also in cars, for instance. Uh, especially uh, men, they, they they make the development development through cars. I remember once visiting someone in the United States, and it was was not in the East Coast, not in the West Coast. It was near St. Louis, and uh, he invited me, you know, to and came to. And it was a man, and he um, it was a couple I actually met, and uh, we were was received, and he said, oh hi, great to meet you, and so. And he didn't talk that much, you know. She she talked about, you know, what you're doing, what they made. And uh, he was actually more or less, you know, so so you want to be here? And so, you know, uh, you have a good trip. So, you know, that's what he said. And then afterwards, we stood in the garden and had a big, huge garden. And I discovered a Chevy in the garden, Lord old Chevy, which with no number plates and so he said, what's a, what's a Chevy? Said, oh, well, that's actually the second car I bought. Mm. So he walked to the car. And then he started relating how he bought the car, what he invested in, what he experienced with it. And then he said, you know, was, he made, up, made made out with someone in the car. And then he had another car. Mm. so he had another car, which was then a station wagon somehow. So, so the,
1: the car was in the middle of the garden? Yeah, but it was a huge garden. I mean, that yeah, it's, it's... He was using it like a part like of the garden.
2: Yes, it was. No, it was hidden behind. Oh. It wasn't actually exposed, you know. Mm. It was a bit more hidden, but he had kept it. You could see he kept his cars. Mm. It was fascinating to see... Like a little
1: he, kid who hides his toys. Yes, exactly. It was...
2: he didn't want to hide it. It didn't distinctly the, the exfoliants yeah. just in the garden and then i realized he started talking about it he started talking about the 60s he started talking about the 80s he started talking about the challenges so he started to talk about it. and i realized his soul was in cars mm. cars were a container of his whole development
1: mm.
2: so it's actually through cars he could connect to himself mm. so um now, back to your questions. Now, where does, The question is where does soul express itself? Yeah. For our, our fathers of psychoanalysis, Freud, Jung, they were trying to decipher soul, but they, of course, worked in the consultation room,
1: mm.
2: worked vis a vis someone, you know, um, encountering sitting there. So it was a very intimate place. Mm. It was a place where actually looking each other in the eye, seeing each other, being related to someone was of prime importance, Mm. was actually the way you approach someone. And uh, also, you know, then the whole, and I think this influenced it. So the ritual which was chosen by Jung Freud is a ritual which is very much focused on the personal history, on where soul expresses itself in the personal history. Mm. It wasn't a setting, you know. Freud didn't go and look at car- well, there were, I think there were cars with Jung, with Jung, there were a lot of cars. Mm. He didn't go and, and look at different cars. Mm. One just on the sidelines, uh, which is also interesting, which one doesn't know about Jung? You know, Jung was very fascinated by sports cars
1: mm.
2: and he loved going. Driving a sports car, especially after it rained, because he loved driving through puddles and kind of uh, soaking people who were pedestrians. (laughs) He also had this fascination. So, but it's completely.
1: Yeah, I didn't know that. That's interesting. They don't talk much about that.
2: About sports cars. He chose completely another path. Mm. And I think for those times, it was okay. It was fine. It was understandable. But what actually then happened, what psychologists, started to be defined by a certain setting, personal encounter, you know, uh, uh, metaphors, narratives from the past, you know, parents, and suddenly also parents became important, mm. child became important. I'm not saying that that's not important. Mm. It is important. Mm. It's important, of course, and it's also decisive, and also has tremendous influence, but there's another aspect. Mm. The other aspect is what I call myth, probably now we would call it a bit different, but other actually the way soul expresses itself in other settings. Cars is one example, but you know it's also history. It's sports.
1: Sports. Um,
2: sports.
1: Uh, going, going out with a group of men to have a drink, um, Maybe conversation too. changes yeah. itself. Um, So the activities of uh, the activities that males um, feel free in to express. So uh, if I may, um, is not the same as sitting in the consultation room, which is much more intimate and much more uh, feminine in respects because it was not, um, uh, it was not, it wasn't a masculine venue for the treatment of uh, the male client?
2: Yes, it was some kind of, it's a setting, which also, what I'm saying is the setting defined the content of what was talked, the setting defined the, uh, the images which emerged. This is psychological eating, that was defined by the second setting. I mean, nowadays, we know that. It's, as you know, there's a lot of research yeah. that the way t- people talk is, is from the consciousness. That's actually what happened to...
1: Yeah, I mean, the way we work with kids, we work with them uh, outdoors now, we work okay. in different settings because this is what they need to express soul. I think that we... Express way. self.
2: Not there, but actually, um, so... Um, then, actually, this was the notion, the focused, And also, of course, it was mainly women they worked with. Oh. And especially Jung, he, he was actually concentrated on women. Oh. And his whole psychology, I think he got very much influenced by, uh, he was actually studying, exploring a psychology which, in its tendency, only in its tendency, I mean, I don't believe in fixed gender oh. study, Types in its tendency, um, was more attractive to women. Yeah. And, um, Well, know,
1: that would make sense because he, he would have, he would have been informed, uh, of the psychology, informed of, um, the way the psychology was unfolding based on the, uh, clients that you are treating. So when I was in, um, when I was studying in Chicago, and I was working in a place and I was working with disturbed kids, I was informed of soul through the disturbed kid. So I was formed by their disturbance, by their environment, by um, the way they perceive the world. And um, that's how my psychology, my understanding of young psychology was, uh, relate to me because it affects a lot of what we do, depending on who we start working with.
2: Absolutely, and it's very interesting, you know, because I think both Jung and Freud they had a what's the word? Hint, got a, a, an intuition that actually there's something else. Because Freud started, you know, developed his Oedipus complex. Yeah, you know, the myth of he started quoting myths yeah to understand the individual psychology mm. which is a very interesting step yeah so he himself thought mythologically you know probably in myths but he used it then actually to understand uh, individual and uh, I think Jung also he started to you know going to alchemy uh, going into uh, yeah, archetypes mythology but he he actually had both sides but I think that the it didn't do the step by thinking, wait, we have to make, maybe refocus a little bit. Human beings are not just primarily determined or by their individual stories or psychology, but the whole mythological surrounding. Mm. It's also a tremendous...
1: So, so his, his, his book, Totem and Taboo, uh, Freud's book, is his dream of creation, yeah. And in the dream of creation, in the book, and I'll summarize, and I hope I don't—I'm not too far off. Um, basically, what there is an old father, who um, all the women in the tribe belong to him, and any son who reaches a adolescent age or starts to um, starts to become a man, um, is shunned from the family is shunned outside is basically chucked outside and is no longer able to stay within the family and cannot, um, and cannot be with any of the women. So this happens to all the male children in this tribe in Totem and Tabu. And they get together and decide to kill the father. And in their moment of rage, they um, get together and they're so frightened, so terrified of this Godhead that they basically cut the head off. And then um, they start to have a ritual where they worship the head or ask for forgiveness for um, severing the head of to take back the women and be re-invited into the, um, the tribe. So the premise of the psychology is that the male has to uh, decapitate or kill the father to stand in their own.
2: No. I would say two things. First of all, that was. Oh, we're
1: talking about totem and taboos, So there's. Uh, yeah. 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 And,
2: uh, uh, Freud, when Freud uh, based his totem and taboo book on ethnological studies in his days, which are nowadays. Uh, I forgot the right word, which, which are that nobody would hold, which are yeah. But what is interesting is, uh, and that was a trap, I think Freud realized. There's collective dy- dynamics. There's dynamics which kind of are not just about the individual family, but broader, which one has to quote in order to understand the, the development of boys or of men. I think that's, that's a, the, the, the genius side of Freud. He understood that. But he, but it was still kind of tagged in a very, in a psychological way, because this might be a misunderstanding. Then, you know, how do you understand a myth like that? It's yeah. a, myth, a yeah. story like
1: that. Well, it's the myth of
2: it is, well, it reveals, it reflects the father. It's actually the it's about relation to the physical father, the personal father, the influence of the father, and you have an antagonistic relationship. And so, you really, if in order to grow up, you have to conquer the father, but at the same time, you're a So you cherish him afterwards. So that would be a very psychological way of interpreting it. And I think that's what probably, I don't know, Freud tended to, but now we can look at it completely different. You could Mm. say, well, this is a story about authority, power, about dynamics, you know, a story not about an individual, but something which is in society, which reveals itself in society again and again, in groups, Mm. which have no Personal connection, which have no relation. So it's a, in a group. So you, the father could be an institution. You work at an institution, and in order to achieve something you want in the institution, you have to kind of, uh, kind of redefine the whole power issue. You have to. There's a power struggle. You have to kill mm-hmm. the ideas or the basics of that institution. But at the same time, of course, you have to connected from cherishing it so it's not actually about um just you know the personal development but it's also about how especially men behave bring themselves in to a collective institution uh, collective uh, body or entity that's actually it was interesting this is kind of a dynamic which um reveals itself again and again in young boys they search or a father, but not the father as a representative of, uh, of the family, but a father outside and start to use the codes. And to, I, I give you an example, which I just had to, uh, three days ago, which was interesting. Uh, parents the parents, and the father uh, came of a 15 year old who was behaving outrageously in Zurich kind of, a, and then um, came to me and he was a very, he was a social worker, he was very, um, considerate, very reflective, mm. and he said, and the, you know, his mother was there, and he said, I don't understand this. I just don't understand this. My son was beaten, attacked someone in the schoolyard, beat him up, because the other one had said, your mother, mm. you know, and now your mother, we call it Didi Mutter, and mm. Now this is a code among certain ethnic groups in Switzerland in order to legitimize yourself to have a fight. Yeah. It's a provocation, Ooh. you know, a provocation provocation you have a fight. It means you insult, you've insulted my mother. Ooh. Now what is fascinating, this is something which is completely, this provocation is not linked to the actual mother. So yeah. it's, it's a wordy word or a provocation, a verbatim which serves as a provocation, which is is actually has its meaning from a completely different setting from the setting of a collective dynamics where this is kind of a someone that's the super chief and then the, the opponents and then that's where it's used. This father said, "This is bizarre. My son would never fight for the honor." his mother this is really he doesn't care Mm. but he kind of entered the scene you know he was joining some kind of collective myth (coughs) and there this was the specific code now if you had this in analysis in therapy this boy and he said why do you fight for your mother i mean Mm. do you want to protect your mother you're completely off the track Mm. it's not about that it's about joining a group with codes which actually is founded on the specific myth of kind of, you know, um, conquering each other, gaining power. So it's a, it's a completely different story. There's, uh,
1: there's a story my father tells about us when we first arrived in the United States in 1975, um, when he was studying at university. Uh, he was studying ESL, so he was learning the language. So we would go to school. Um, we didn't speak the language, so we would go to school and come back. And there was this kid who basically was a crossing guard who used to pick on us. Um, And we'd come home and um, we'd cry to my father. We'd complain about this kid bothering us or picking on us. So uh, one day my father looked at us. It was like, we were pretty young. We didn't speak the language. We were in a foreign country. And he said, "Um, you cannot come home. You are not my children if you do not um, stand up for yourself and beat this kid. If you do not fight back, then don't bother coming home. So me and my brother are walking to school discussing how we have no home if we don't stand up to this kid. So there was very little, we were around the ages of eight, nine. Um, I was, and my younger brother was six. and so we're discussing how we're not gonna have a home. So we're on our way back and this kid is much bigger than us. So what my brother does is he um, goes on all fours behind the kid and I push the kid, he falls in the snow and we jump on top of him and we're just like kidding him on the snow. And my mother is very far away, she's holding, um, our little brother, she comes running, screaming, um, sorry, 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 sorry. And she's just trying to get us off of him. So we go home and my mom is very upset with us. She's like, what, what are you guys doing? How, what, what are you thinking? Um, and my father looked at us and he was very, very proud. And he said, um, now you are my sons. So he tells the story. He tells the story all the time. In different settings, he tells a story. Um, we just took it as, you know, father telling stories. We didn't, but it was a big thing for him that his sons stood up, that they were, um, they stood up for themselves. So he still tells that story today. Um, it's, it's an interesting story because it's, uh, it didn't, For us, it was like, oh, we don't have a home to go to. For him, it was much different. It was like, um, it was a rite of passage.
2: Yeah, it's a very interesting story. And I think there's like two ways of looking at it. One way of looking at it is now from personal psychology. You could say, well, it expresses the relation between your father and you. And your father was an immigrant and he was kind of powerless, so he was actually trying to compensate his not being perhaps accepted yet in the culture by kind of uh, invigorating his sons to stand for him. So he could put it on these lines. Or you could say, well, he was actually quoting some kind of important um, clan myth, you know, a clan which a foundation of a specific group he belonged to Say well, we you know you, if you have to make a stance, you have to become, impose yourself. It wasn't actually related even to youth and uh, no.
1: to the yes. religion.
2: And the indication is that he's keeping, uh, he keeps on, it kept on telling it. Yes, that's an indication that it's actually a
1: myth.
2: Yes, it is. Yes, and not just a personal attitude or approach. He was no. quoting a myth. Probably from his miracle, you know, so some kind of, uh, I don't know, myth which was around, which was important, you know, that's, that might have been,
1: but it's not. Well, yes, because he kept quoting it all these years and it, it has a personal aspect, like you said, but it was more of a myth. It was a myth with his, his sons involved in it at a young age. And he always, um, he always chuckles when he tells the story. Like he's, um, like there's personal delight in um, the way it unfolded, exactly the way it should have unfolded. And I think in the myth in his head, um, it unfolded the way, so it kind of resonated throughout time that he kept telling the story. Now, the story wasn't, um, I mean, we didn't, we were little kids and it was like a scruff. It was like a um, like kids rolling in the snow. It wasn't um, like people bleeding, or it's like
2: it wasn't that serious. It wasn't
1: that serious, but it it took this context of um, and we were just concerned. I remember telling my brother, "Where the hell are we going to go? We we were just thinking we needed a place like we could go home."
0: Mm-hmm. Um
1: so it, for us we were little kids it was like well you can't go home well how is it that you cannot go home this is mm-hmm. so um um yeah it's, th- these kind of myths these kind of stories that we tell um changes the way we start to uh it has already changed the way we interact in the world. We are already different in the world. I think when you talk about males and females, I think uh, I wanna go back to your book on page 17, uh, you say something um, very precise about this. You say, what I'd like to mention a further point regarding psychology's failure to do justice to men's soul We need to consider who it was who first entered the psychotherapeutic consulting room and for whom this setting was immediately conducive. Both Freud and Jung gained their most important knowledge in dealing with female patients. They discovered the meaning of psychology through working with women. Freud developed his theories of hysteria and neuroses from his experience with Anna O, Emma von N, Miss Lucy, uh, Kathrina, Elizabeth von Ar, and transferred his understanding to men by diagnosing hysteria in men, as well as women. Women showed Freud the way to the meaning of the unconscious and the pers- the personal trauma. Of Jung, we know that his thinking was stimulated all during his life by his work with women patients, and that Tony Wolf, Yoland Jokowi, Mary-Louise von Franz, Annelle Yaffe were important collaborators. In other words, the discoveries of these great psychologists might be only the expression of their confrontation with the feminine soul. Through working with women, Freud and Jung discovered psychology, a perspective that women had long taken for granted. What they declared to be objective discoveries about human nature might in reality be but the results of their attempts to understand the female, so as investigators, they directed their attention to what was alien and unfamiliar. In doing so, they would of necessity have turned to the psychic orientation opposite their own. They selected a ritual that seemed unusual to them and followed their fascination for the female, something they experienced as a powerful counterposition to their masculinity they thus expanded the unconscious by adding mysterious dimensions what they considered to apply in general to the soul of human beings turns out under more critical observation to be the language of the feminine soul now you go on to say this is uh, um, to explain that you're um, you Naturally, I do not mean by this that they conceived a psychology that does, that does justice to feminine psyche either. Although Freud and Jung moved in a feminine environment, they directed their attention as men to the psyche of women. Their masculine perspective colored what and how they saw. We can assume that they used their masculine system of references to orient themselves in an arena unknown to them. While they looked into the souls of women, they do so with the eyes of men. Their masculine background inevitably intruded in producing what they took as valid answers. So I I, I think you you clarify the point that basically what what they started, um, where their journey started, um, they were surrounded Uh, by those who were willing to um, go into this therapy in a certain way and it informed the therapy itself. It's like, uh, like we say, um, the observed and the observer change, are changed by the event. The -hmm. event doesn't just change um, the observed it changes the observer. I think this is what you're trying to say, that the the working with female clients um, changed the way they started to see um, and understand psychology.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah, well, what I want to say is actually what you're pointing out. But I think there are two other things to say to this. On one hand, I think, you know, Freud, Jung, with a masculine way of thinking, and of course, this is a term you would not use, which is really a, today, outrageous masculine way of thinking, but I think naturally it's a tendency of using collective myths, and so they actually entered the realm of a kind of a psychology which in some ways, was more uh, lean more to, to feminine way of thinking. Again, these gender stereotypes are, of course, very, tricky because they can lead us to make categories. But what is very interesting is by actually dedicating themselves, trying to understand women, they actually did a great thing, both men and women. I think this was a very good example of shows of manifesting what collaboration between masculine and feminine way of thinking can do. That's the way psychoanalysis or was, like, was, was discovered, or the way of psychological thinking, because men tried to enter a realm which they didn't understand. What actually then happened, of course, that it was very heavily uh, taken concretely. The difference was not seen. It, was, it wasn't seen. That, I think Freud and Jung weren't quite aware of their um, na- n- um, focused... Uh, of men, they were discoverers trying to discover to enter a realm which is completely different and new, and, and so that's what they're trying to do. But they were actually doing, they were discovering a lot of dynamics, emphasis, symbols, stories, which actually, in a tendency, are more prone for women.
1: So, I think, I think, if I may. I think what you're saying is that um, they missed the nuance of the feminine in the, in the consulting room, because they were working with the feminine, they missed that nuance. And so when it was transposed into working with men, it also came, the nuance also came to working with men as working with women in that type of, is that, is that what you're
2: that's what I'm saying. And I mean, and the results are clear. I mean, you could see it in, in our country as in, in every country. I mean, who goes to see a psychotherapist and psych, a psychologist? It's predominantly women.
1: Ooh. So um,
2: that's where they feel understood. Someone listens, someone doesn't just provoke, you know. You know, so, is a, so it's like, the, it's the
1: acceptance is the acceptance of the methodology um, that grasps um, certain male clients as uh, too intimate, or
2: it's it looked, it's a many different
1: aspects. Okay, is
2: one aspect is, for instance, trying to understand someone mm-hmm. See? I mean, these are very valuable tools or whatever to approach you trying to understand, you listen, but it's something which is not the only way to understand. soul. with men, often provocation, interrupting, loudness, shouting, these are also important elements.
1: Aggression, physical, uh, no, no. positioning, or no. no, no. no, no,
2: no, posing. I would talk it on the reflective mode. Not,
1: well, uh, even, uh, even the reflective mode, aggression can come out in yeah, words. Right. It could come, out, can come in out in the form way form. I stand and look at you. Yes, but
2: what I'm doing now is I'm, a, I'm kind of comparing empathy with provocation. So these are two means of communication you know, two means to approach someone who's there. And when you, empathy is important, but it's actually, if you look at the way, and this is, you know, if you look at modern studies and the way women tend to talk and men tend to talk. And if you see how, this is something you can see on youngsters. This is something you can see with businessmen. When men meet each other, they might ask, well, how are you? Well, life's difficult, okay. Do you you know they, the the yeah of course they spend on actually investigating how is someone feeling doing is very short often they don't say anything okay oh, you old buddy how is he still and what they do um, and then you see a great difference and it's obvious you know as you can see that when uh, women usually tend a lot more to use empathy they say well how are, oh oh I'm so sorry. I can imagine that's terrible for you. Yes. How do you feel now? Do you want a coffee? Oh, that's really bad. So that's, uh, and this is a stereotype naturally, but you can see also from the case study. When a man comes and, oh, well, I don't know. Well, you know, life is hard. Well, you know, I, you know, how women are, you know, they have a completely way of connotation. And um, then I think who doesn't realize that using provocation using an antagonistic way of talking, interaction, using also loudness, is is perhaps a more masculine way of approaching. But what has happened now in psychology, that the terms or the methodology or the approach is um, very much defined by this way of reaching soul, which is predominantly, uh, dominators uh, among uh,
1: women. Um, I really like you, you go into this quite deeply, actually on page 18 through 19, you talk about, well, Freud recognized the essential differences between men and women, even though he was of the opinion that quote, this is Freud, pure masculinity and femininity remain constructions with uncertain contents. And then you go on to talk about how, according to Freud, a boy's superego has a different quality and development history than that of a girl. In a boy, the superego forms toward off the danger of merger with the feminine. By identifying with the contents of the superego, the boy saves himself from a complicated triangulation. He thereby directs his energy to the great necessity of life through them to the outer world. There is another way we can understand the conflict that Freud attempted to grasp theoretically. This is on page 19, second paragraph. Instead of his psychodynamic interpretation, we could choose a mythological approach. While from a psychological perspective, the superego results from the fear of the father's revenge and of insurmountable instinctual drives. The reverse is the case from a mythical view. The superego does not result from a developmental conflict Rather, the soul of the individual man arranges situations to guide it to the myth. According to this way of seeing the great necessity of life, the myths are the goal of the process, not simply the result of the boy's development. Yeah. And, and then you, um, I'm going to go down to the bottom paragraph. You say, um, a boy is castrated when he allows himself to be Uh, quote, Freud, psychologized by orienting himself only through relational psychology. He loses his specifically masculine aptitude for the mythical. He assumes the psychological perspective when he understands himself only as an individual being and allows himself to be defined from his relationship to his mother. He thus remains cut off from the outer reaches of his soul. The boy must therefore stave off the feminine symbolized for him by the mother who further represents a particular psychological orientation. Castration anxiety is justified from a male point of view. Men would become feminized were they to follow the fantasy of the merger with the mother and psychology. They would no longer find their way to the myths where they to place their own personal needs to the foreground and orient themselves exclusively to the mother. According to current understanding in developmental psychology, the Oedipal phase does not apply to all children. Not all girls are in love with their fathers and not all boys see fathers as a rival. Freud, however, considered his discoveries to be objectively valid. To establish and verify his theory, he cited the Greek myths or supported his position with the ethnological theories of his time. Roy's thinking was masculine. His theory and support for the theory derived from his own mythological orientation to life. I thought that was um, that was quite eloquent. Um, you are talking about men of their day um, and their time. At the same time, you are talking about them as men who saw the world from a masculine perspective. Um, do you want do you have a thought
2: well i think that I, I wrote it down then i think it's uh it's important to see i mean it's about soul it's about connecting about motivation you know what motivates us and um, this you know this way um this uh, in order to understand men how they function in order to give them a role in life Actually, we have to consider that, that it's, there is a difference and they're actually um, motivated by, by different symbols and so on. That's actually uh, what I wanted to say. I think, you know, for me, when I wrote the book, I thought this, this, is, this should be like the second step. There's the first step where one discovered the psychology, which is more feminine, you know, and then the second step would be we would actually then kind of describe or what actually the, the approach to men could be, because we do, we don't have to we have to, um, we usually forget that psychology in some ways fails to reach men. I mean, this is something we have to really admit as psychologists. I mean, eighty percent I think of the the clients are. Women. and men are usually sent because they fail, you know, they have to go because they have a breakdown, a burnout.
1: And so or women, s- uh, somebody tells them to go. They don't go, um, to uh, bring
2: rarely a man goes by its own will and said, Well, I'm so interested to know. So rarely, it sometimes happens, of course, and a lot of differentiated men do that, but usually it's kind of a breakdown when uh, then they go. Mm. But Otherwise, man because
1: it's seen as a deficiency in the ability to be masculine. It's Absolutely. seen as a deficiency to stand up for oneself. Exactly. If you're masculine and you are going for help, that means you are deficient in that capacity. It's, an, it's, a, it's where you say on page 21, I am convinced that a man's soul expresses itself in mythical images. And so that's what's, that, that is the conflict. The conflict is, it goes against the myth.
2: Well, the conflict is, a, it's a wrong language. And then it's, you know, if you see all this, if a man is successful, is a real man, powerful, then he does not reflect on psychology usually. He might do it very much in private a little bit, but it's not something he really admits he does because it's considered. As you said, it's considered you're being a failure. And for me, it was astonishing after I've written that book that I was, by whom I was invite, invited. I was invited by a lot of very male groups, for instance, a lot by the Catholic church oh. ministers. And that invited me there. I was invited by the Freemasons. I was invited by groups of men. Oh. And they had then heated discussions about themselves, oh. about the background. I also got a lot of men who came then to me and wanted to talk about the myths they followed, the big stories in their jobs, in, in, in raising their families. And so And then I realized that's where men start to open. Mm-hmm. That's when they suddenly get interested. But they don't get interested and say, well, of course, maybe you and your job, you kind of react to not have being appreciated enough by your mother and so that's might also be the case, but they, they don't get they don't move.
1: Yeah, you say it here at the end of the paragraph. You say men sense that through psychotherapy they subordinate themselves to a system and a ritual that does not correspond to the primary language of their souls.
2: Yeah. That's actually what's happening. And I mean, I've written that I think 20 or 30 years ago, in quite a long time. And um, in the meantime, I've done a lot of work when I developed myth drama because of that, because I realized I need to, we need to develop a psychology which also includes men, which is not just based and focused on personal stories, but also uses the expressions, the metaphors, and the big myths which are around, because that's because it's all so often also a problem. A lot of men fail because of that. There's a lot of Outrageous things happening. I mean, if you look at coming back to the dream, if you look at the Second World War, these were all myths. Third I sort a completely perversive myth about, uh, you know, about uh, purity and crazy ideas. And purity is a myth. You know, if you think of an ethnic group which thinks we have to be pure, we have to, then it was white, blonde, it's bizarre. It's a myth. But if you look at it as a myth, it has a completely different, then actually you can uh, can uh, kind of take its viciousness maybe out of it, you know. And if I, I worked a lot with young, youngsters with gangs and I realized they were also following these big stories. That's why they were violent. That's why they would go out and kind of beat up each other. They were fighting. They were mythological beings. They were actually, Impersonate, impersonating some
1: myth they have in their head. I don't hear you anymore. Sorry about that. I, yeah. I was, um, I'm looking forward to that. That's in chapter three. Okay. Um, I, I look forward to that conversation because um, that talks about young males, uh, gangs, and identification. I think it's essential uh, reading for any person who is delving into um, psychology who works with uh, male clients or uh, young male clients. Um, Here, um, I wanted to, on page 23, you said, Um, in the middle of the page, you say, the equality myth governs analytical psychology as much as other psychologies. Analytical psychology joined the legitimate collective trend in calling for equal rights for women in society. Psychology presents itself as a science of emancipation of women. The time has come, however, for us to free ourselves of the myth of equality to reflect seriously on differences. If we regard the characteristics of gender only as metaphors for various aspects of existence, then emancipation too will stagnate. If we continue to blur gender differences, those anthropological realities shaping our being, we will miss the chance to develop social structures that would make emancipation possible, in spite of clear gender identities without a sense of difference, we could succumb to the seductive idea of psychic equality and the the neglect needed to conceive a language for the male soul. Um, In other words, um, we all become the same creature and we're no longer, um, uh, we're we're no longer um, within ourselves, we're no longer unique.
2: Yeah, well, the, yeah, exactly. We're no longer unique and we fail actually to appreciate and integrate uh, a difference, which is which we also have in soul. And we actually we repress or elude uh, different aspects of life. And uh, what I mean of equality, in German you have Gleichheit und Gleichberechtigung, you have two words. And they uh, use uh, two words, uh, you know equal rights and Ooh. equality. So I think it's absolutely understood that equal rights, equal chances, and everything, that's something which is uh, uh, goes for men and women. Ooh. Equality means sameness. You could call it sameness. And this idea that we're absolutely the same, mm. that I think is to this
1: point. I, I like that term, um, sameness instead of equality, because equality has a political exactly. feeling yeah. to it sameness is different sameness is uh is a washing out of any kind of distinct identity for uh the individual client as if they come from um if they're male or female or but also where they come from um culturally where they are raised um what type of caregivers they had who raised them um, how did they experience the world how did their society and group experience the world? Um, um, you uh, talk about uh, Switzerland and the Alps, and um, geography has a lot to do with our experiences of the world. Okay. Um, if we live near the water, if we live uh, near an ocean, if we live in the mountains, if we live uh, in the jungles, if we live in a city, if we live, you know, so all these things affect us in different ways. I think this is part of the point. This is, uh, so this is our introduction to um, the first chapter um, of Dr. Guillemot's book. Um, So we're just beginning to kind of uh, get dangerous. We, okay. we, yeah. we we haven't gotten dangerous yet. We've been sidestepping danger. In uh, the second chapter next week, uh, we are going to talk about vessels for nations, myths, culture, profession, and family. The tension between mythology and psychology um, in Dr. Alan Guggenreel's book. Like I said earlier, if you are interested in following along as I... Um, go through the book and try to highlight some of the arguments that are being made. Um, Of course, uh, as Dr. Guggenbiel said, this is a book that's 24 years old. So there is is some uh, things that need to be looked at. Or if he was doing it again, I'm sure he would re-edit certain parts. But if you are interested in following along, um, A Books has it. if you ask Amazon enough times, they should uh, get it back in their stock. And uh, with that, I would like to thank uh, Dr. Alan Buhl for um, coming on this journey with me to um, look over his book, Men, Power and Myth, The Quest for Male Identity. Um, it sounds uh, more masculine than it is. Um, I know this man for a very long time, and um, with that, I would like to thank you. I am Dr. Lahab Al Samurai, um, and today we are gonna discuss. Um, today we discussed our first chapter, and next week we will go to our second chapter. Um, Dr. Guganbill, thank you for your time. Um, do you have any mm-hmm. words to our listeners? Anything you want to say for today?
2: No, I thought it's great if you're listening it. And of course, it will be interesting also in hearing if someone else has some thoughts or if they can align it to some of their own experiences, of course.
1: But, I um, am pretty sure we will have feedback. <laughs> I look forward to it. Um,
0: thank you again for today. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Individuation Podcast. We hope you enjoyed hearing from Dr. Buhl and Dr. El Samurai. We would also like to thank Alan for taking his time to join us. We hope you enjoyed the first chapter from Alan's book, Men, Power, and Myth. The Quest of Male Identity. Tune in again next time to the Individuation Podcast for another episode soon. at the Institute of Conflict greatly appreciate all of you listeners. Please share the podcast with your friends and spread the word. If you would like to help expand our community, like us on Facebook and Instagram and give us a five-star review on iTunes. I'm Sonia Mahmood and you've just listened to the Institute of Conflict Individuation Podcast. We'll be back soon.